You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. We are in uh, our final week of a series called Dreams, Scheme, uh, Themes, and Schemes. We started this three-week series as a one-week standalone message, and that's how it happens. Uh, but the themes the Lord has given us in this season of dreaming together were just too rich to just kind of dump five or six things on you and move on. So we've kind of talked about one or two specific things each week. They don't always uh, relate real closely together, but we just want to cover the things that we feel the Lord is speaking to us. And it's just taken longer than we thought because the dreams are layered. And uh, how many of you might have been in college in the 90s? Okay. Are you serious? Okay. All right. Anybody, anybody friends, uh, friend, fans of the cranberries? All right. Okay. <laughs> Jen was, she was reticent to admit that she was in college in the 90s, but she quickly owned up to be a cranberries fan. Cranberries had a song. That's kind of weird. Kind of weird. Uh, Cranberries had this great lyric, in all my dreams, it's never quite what it seems, right? You you dream something, and later you go, what did that mean? My dad, who probably wouldn't have been super involved in these dream stream meetings, though, would have these bizarre dreams, and he'd always say, why do you never ask why in a dream? Why is it when you're dreaming something, you you don't ever go, why is it? It would be so helpful if in a dream you would ask why, but you don't. And so you find yourself later sitting and talking with friends going, what might that possibly mean? But in this series, we haven't really talked a lot about the specific dreams. We have chosen to speak more about the themes that come out of those dreams because the dreams are all over the map and we could tell story after story after story. It's really not helpful. The themes matter the most. And so to accentuate this, I have assembled a mathematical equation. How many of you just got nervous? Some of you, when I said math, you leaned back a little bit. You were all with me for the cranberries. And when I went to math, you backed out. All right, it's pretty simple because, remember, I am a Bible college graduate. This is our mathematical equation. Themes are greater than dreams. All right, the themes, the bigger picture, it's not about the dreams. Dreams are not the point. They're the vehicle that opens our heart to ponder the greater realities of what God is speaking to us. What God wants to do is far more real than anything that happens in a dream, but it's often so big that if we didn't dream at first, we'd never imagine it. It's like it has to occur in a realm free of all of your natural objections so that you'll hear the whole thing. The dream of God's heart has got to be revealed somewhere free from the gravitational pull of your natural objections so that you can go, perhaps God. So we're not going to be the church that dreams something, talks about it, and goes to the next dream and just keeps going dream to dream to dream. But neither are we going to adjust our imagination of what God can do to only what we know we can do in the natural. We're going to dream bigger than that. Rejecting God speaking to us through dreams is just as problematic as only living in our dreams. Like, that's just as off base. It's called operating in the flesh. And some people are so skittish about the prophetic that they call it being responsible to remain in the flesh. And the flesh is just not soulish sin. It's an unspiritual reliance on our own thinking. Okay? 1 Thessalonians calls things like that despising prophecy. And it lines it right up next there to grieving the spirit. So if I had to choose, and I don't, but if I had to choose, 
I would say that the realm where everything is possible is superior to the realm where nothing is likely. So I really don't want to live over there. I want to dip my toe in over here and see what the Lord might be saying. Oh, but Randy, isn't it possible to get off into error? Oh, absolutely. But the Spirit of God that has the power to keep you saved, which is probably harder, (laughs) has the power to keep us within the guardrails of safety and wisdom and Scripture. The Lord can do that. So the last two weeks, we've talked about this, and I'm finishing up this week focusing on what God is saying to this congregation through hours of discussion and pondering what the Lord might be saying. Well, I say, Randy, what do you mean when you say what the Lord is saying to us? Is the body of Christ not one? Yes, it is one, but God often speaks different assignments and different things to different congregations because a congregation is meant to be a family, not a franchise. So that's why he may say one thing to one family and one thing to another. We're not so arrogant as to say that what he is saying to our congregation is what he is mandating for everyone. Think of one church in a community with multiple congregations or multiple families. There would be strategic advantages to God telling all of the congregations the exact same thing at the same time, right? I mean, strategically, that makes a little sense. There would also be strategic advantages for him to just do it himself. His value is not efficiency. His value is relationship. So God the Father looks to Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he said, I'm going to use them. It's going to take longer. It's going to be messier, and they're going to goof up. But they're never going to forget this when it's done. He involves us that way. And so he gives different congregations, different assignments. In high-speed fashion, this is what we have learned after dreaming together for a few weeks. And some of you are going, yes, I've heard this, but you probably couldn't repeat it to me. And many of you have not heard it because it's just a transient time. These are the, are the uh, themes that we have pulled out out of just nights and nights and nights of dreaming together. One, we are being set together like cobblestones. What might look like a chaotic pile of rocks will be a wall, and it will be built in line with Jesus, the cornerstone. When we are all built together, we will come into a Galatians 6-2 picture where we bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Some of us can't bear one another's burdens now because we haven't been placed into the wall correctly. We're kind of a train wreck ourselves. He said, I'm building something here and you will be able to bear more than you could bear by yourself. Cobblestones. That was the first one. I told you I'm going to go fast. Second one was the idea that as the bridge... We have got to stay in our lane. Got to stay in our lane. Okay, so what's our lane? We've talked about this week after week. We're going to do a Wheel of Fortune style here. Throw it up there. Okay, how many of you can pull this off? I've always wanted to host a game show, okay? We will be a prophetic, governmental, intercessory body that shakes heaven and shapes earth from the place of prayer. I told you, we're going to get to the point where if if I sneak into your house and poke you in the middle of the night, you're going to wake up saying that. And then you're going to wire you in my house. But you're going to, that's going to be the first thing. Okay, leave that there for a second. What does that mean? We will be a prophetic statement to the world and a prophetic people who hear from the Lord and act. I want your little kids to grow up saying, my parents would hear God and just do it. 
Like they would just do it. Did it always work? No. Sometimes they missed it. But they would do it. They would act. We will be a prophetic people. We will be governmental in that we will recognize our authority and our responsibility to the structures of the earth. Our role is always to serve. It's always to go low, but it's also to express and agree with the mind of God on the pressing issues of our day. Culture is being discipled. We better get our lick in. Okay? The world is discipling our kids. We better have a voice into it. You are being discipled by what you see on a five-inch screen. I'm going to take my shot. This is what it means to be governmental, to speak into things with authority. We are intercessory in that we will stand in the gap between society and God as priests, and we will say, Lord, if you can find one righteous, will you save this city? We're not going to stand in judgment. We're going to stand in intercession. We will shake heaven with persistence like the widow petitioning the judge, and we will shape earth with our years and our resources that God gives us. We're going to do it all from a position of of prayer, not of earthly power. That is our lane. We're going to stay in it. We talked about building a tabernacle at Shiloh. I believe we have a unique calling and invitation. Invitations don't come to everybody, and they don't come all the time. I got a call a couple of years ago. A friend asked me, do you want to go to the sporting game? I have like a hardwired yes for that. Yes, I want to go to the sporting game. Love soccer. I said, where are your seats? He said, section F3, row one, seats one through four. If you don't know the sporting arena, that means you are sitting on the field. There's a wall and there's the game, okay? It's amazing. You're so close that you can give the judges, the, the referees advice. You don't have to yell at him. You just say, hey, hey, that's stunk. Don't do that. It's so, and then, not only that, it's about every 15 minutes, somebody sh- shows up and asks, what would you like to eat? And they just keep bringing you food, like just constantly. I got that invitation. I would have canceled a surgery. Okay? Gallbladder will be fine. I'm going to, I'm going to the game. All right? When you get an invitation, you take it. The, the, you know, a, li- a lifetime of invitation has got to be taken within the opportunity that, uh, where it's there. We are invited, we have an opportunity, an invitation to build a tabernacle, a place to meet with God. And and God said, you build it in your heart at a place called Shiloh, and I will give you assignments there, and I will give you the desires of your heart. Because we have that invitation, we're not content to go and not live in the tabernacle. We're not content to do it anywhere else other than, than Shiloh. And that's metaphorical, that's not a physical place. We talked about the idea of breaking off accusation. Whether it comes from the gap between our fact and our feeling or the accuser or the brother has actually got a point we're being accused, we talk about breaking off accusations. So that's what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. And here we go. This morning, I want to focus and land this series on what we have heard in this dream stream with two themes. First one is the dynamic of being low visibility and high impact. We had dream after dream after dream about the bridge being hidden. Those are not the dreams that you were looking for, you know. What, what about a dream about things just blowing up? What about a dream of, you know, massive worldwide revival? What? No, hidden over and over and over, but hidden with impact. And it was expressed in a m- number of different ways. But the most succinct description of it came from Josiah Sponsler. 
he had this little snippet of a dream, and he just emailed it in. Again, I haven't told many dreams, but this one is so short, I'm just going to read it. This is literally one sentence. The bridge is going somewhere, but they're not taking a plane. They're taking a submarine. Arguably, bad week for submarines. Okay, so just think of it in the greater scheme of things. Okay, in the, what, why a submarine? When he sent this to me and I read it, how many of you remember the old movies in the 70s, Walking Tall? Remember Sheriff Buford T. Pusser? And Sheriff Pusser carried like a fence post in the back of his car and he would just met out justice. At times, he would be the, uh, the jury, the judge, and the executioner. Anyway, he reads this and I felt like I got Buford T. Pussard in the chest with a fence post because it so resonated with what we have heard that the Lord is going to keep us hidden at some level. doesn't mean people won't come, but we may never have what we thought we may have had and be, look big in the eyes of people. Imagine you're a pastor for a minute, okay? As a pastor, you're a little bit the steward of the church's outward face, how people look at it. You want people's perspective of your church to be positive. You want them to think well of Jesus. And a little bit, you want them to think well of you. Let's just be honest. You want them to look at that and go, oh, that's going. You must be good at what you do because you're, it looks impressive. When I was pastoring in Prairie Village, the church grew to a point where people were parking on the grass. And, and I remember somebody who didn't attend the church said, man, I drove by where the people parked all over the grass. And I acted like it's a big problem. I loved it. Oh, you're noticing. Felt like the steward of this outward face. The Apostle Paul directly challenges this human tendency to want to look good on the outside, even to make God look good and us by extension, by saying that we are thinking about the wrong things to begin with. We're too immediately consumed with how we look to people. Most people forget about us shortly after they meet us. The church is imperfect, it's quirky, it's problematic, it's filled with, it's like a hospital, it's filled full of sick people, it's filled full of people at different stages, it's filled full of hurt people. We are particularly a little strange and quirky, okay? We just are who we are, but one day we will be glorious and we will be stunning, and there's this conversation that happens between the angels around the throne in Revelation 19, 7 and 8. They say, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, the bride has made herself ready, she was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, one day we will be glorious. One day we will stand before him and we will be beautiful and the angels will say, I cannot believe she looks like that on her wedding day. Which is why Paul told us to consider it better to be hidden than to be noticed. Because one day we'll be beautiful, but... Not today, saints. How do we arrive at a Revelation 19 beauty? It's based in how we walk out Colossians 3, 2 and 4. Set your mind on things above, not things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear for him in glory. We are not pursuing what we might look like to the world to look wonderful in this life. 
We say, Jesus, hide us in your story. Our day will come. We'll look beautiful one day. It's, it, we're not there. But the more hidden we are now, the more beautiful we'll be. Our greatest season of effectiveness in this life will happen when people do not see us at all. But when they see Jesus. As long as we are concerned with that outward face and how we look, we are focusing on the wrong realm. And Paul says, if you want to make a difference, set your eyes on what is higher. Now, about this idea of looking good and being important. We have friends who have massive national ministries, and I celebrate them. I love that they have that calling. They're great people who love God and have been called to that. I celebrate it. I don't pine for it. Like, I just don't think about it. I, I don't really want it. We may never be known beyond peculiar or West Shawnee. That may be the borders of where anybody who knows who we are. But so help us God, we will be known in heaven and hell. If we hide ourselves in him, we'll be known in heaven and hell. And that's why we are called to be hidden so that we'll be effective in eternity. The past couple of decades, there has evolved a certain formula to starting a church. And I really want you to hear me. I'm not being critical. I'm drawing a distinction. I'm not drawing a conclusion here, okay? But over the past couple of decades, here has been the church planting formula, and I'll, I'll summarize it, and nobody who uses this formula would call it this, but I'm going to call it this, okay? It's, it's the formula is fake it till you make it. And the plan is to gather the largest number of people you can on any one given week into one big room and provide every bell and whistle that those consumers, attenders, would want to get the best childcare, the best video, the, the best of everything, get this massive mob together and roll this thing out and then pray to God for six days that half of them show up the next week. And then when they get there, you have to explain to them that you need all of them to volunteer because you, you now you need to get them to build what you told them that they came to see to begin with. If this works... Visibility takes over and the payoff is fast and high and huge and it happens and it works, but often the cost is high because some people, when they figure out that now they've got to volunteer to what they were just coming to because they liked it, feel like they thought they were going to Disneyland and now they got a job at Disneyland. Like... Now increasingly, pastors and churches are going, yeah, this actually doesn't work long term. And they're moving away from this idea. Even pastors with well-known ministries are beginning to question their own commitment to just keeping the machine running. You know that I'm a big fan of John Tyson, Church of the City in New York. From the outside, you look at Church of the City, and man, he's got it going on. Like this five, six services bouncing all over New York City because they keep losing leases. And he's literally tweeting on Saturday night, church has moved to, and everybody goes to, but it's happening, you know, it's booming. And recently I heard him say, I'm not willing to bleed for big, exciting services that allow us to gather more volunteers so that we can have bigger services that require more volunteers, so we can have bigger services that gather more volunteers to run those services. But to build a family that honors Jesus and cares for one another, I'll lay down my life for that. 
We will lay down our lives alongside Jesus and be hidden in him if it means we gain the right to be sons and daughters. I'll bleed for that. Over and over, we heard dreams of being hidden, being kept from view, being intentionally overlooked and not noticed. It is the antithesis of faking it until we make it. But being small or hidden doesn't mean to say we have no impact. In fact, one of the phrases the Lord has given over and over again to us is that of disproportionate influence, that we would make a difference that would never be reflected by our size or our swagger. I have no illusions of being the best or biggest show on earth because that would leave me running the biggest show on earth. I don't think I want to bleed for that. I want to build a body of people who will shake heaven and shape earth from the place of prayer. When the mayor needs somebody to host the governor, let him call somebody else. But when the mayor needs somebody to pray for their sick child, let him call the bridge. Why is it so hard to embrace the idea of being hidden? Because we want it, but like all the time? Can we be a little not hidden? Can we be like hidden three out of five days? Is, like, is there a ratio? Is there, do we have to be always hidden? Some of you are wrestling with this. Even as you're hearing me, you're like, well, you know, Pastor. And you'd like to do it a little bit differently. Why does it bother us so much that we may be hidden and maybe nobody will know our name? I've also heard John Tyson, the same guy who said, I will bleed for this and not that. He also one time said, We've been in New York City for 17 years and there's still not a building that you can point to and say that's our church. Bothers him. Here's my guess. We don't want to be forgotten by others because it comes too close to the feeling of rejection that so many of us have wrestled with in other arenas. You ever been rejected? Don't raise your hand. Okay, let's just save everybody humiliation. That probably stuck with you a lot longer than you thought it might to the point that it became a part of your story that you can't help but tell. I had a thought two years ago that has haunted me, and I may have shared this before, but I ran into somebody that I hadn't seen for seven, eight, nine years, and time was tight. We didn't have a whole lot of time. And so we just talked very briefly. And you know how it is when you meet, it's like meeting somebody in the airport and you're going one way and you're going the other. You just have a few minutes that you want to share your story. And I found myself in those few minutes sharing how terribly I had been hurt by someone. Like that's, when you poked me, that's what came out. And it haunted me. Like, why, what is it about me that if I only see you for three minutes in 10 years that I feel like I have to tell you the most painful part of that story? Something about that's a little messed up. It's a sign of someone who's more aware of people's opinions than God's smile. That guy can't afford to be hidden. Like, he just can't. Because he's afraid it feels too much like rejection. What is your airport story? Like, what do you tell people when you get, you know, they see you for a moment. What is, oh, let me catch you up. Is it pain? Some people would speak of the goodness of God because that is the overarching metaphor and that's what they live in. Others would tell how they have been hurt or how they've been betrayed. Being rejected really is a part of your story. And here's the hard part. It might have actually been a necessary part of your story. God is the most complex writer of stories 
and there's no throwaway scenes in the play of your life. You ever, you ever watch a movie or a scene and you're like, yeah, why was that even in there? They could have hit delete on that. Wouldn't have there are no scenes in your life in which you could hit delete and the whole life story makes sense. So even those places of rejection were ones that the Lord has allowed to happen and will use them to write the greater story of your life. Heidi and Roland Baker met in 1979. They got married the next year and left for the mission field two weeks later. Can you imagine? They go to the mission field. They found an organization called Iris Global. They're continuing to direct now. In 1995, they moved the entire thing to Mozambique where they care for orphans throughout Mozambique and really across Africa. Heidi also regularly travels to the United States where she speaks in conferences and she's almost the opposite of what you would think of as a high-powered conference speaker. She is the most childlike person I have ever been around. She's very gentle, very tender. She's also paid a significant price to sow her life into the orphans of Mozambique. She has chosen a hidden place on the earth to do her best work. Somebody pointed this quote out from Heidi Baker to me this week. She said, Jesus picked up his cross, not so you didn't have to, but so that you could. He picked up his cross to enable you to go through those seasons that lead you to being okay with being hidden. We all have a cross, but unlike Jesus, we don't have to carry it alone. In fact, our pain can actually be used to shape us into the person who can afford to be hidden because we know whose opinion matters. Sometimes we are naturally hidden and overlooked so that we will be supernaturally effective. Disproportionate influence is earned from God breathing on us in a disproportionate way. Sally left me a voice memo this week. I'm not going to lie. Voice memos are not my favorite thing. Because you got to listen to them, okay? But I listen to them because it's Sally. And Sally, I am listening to this. I listened to it four or five times. Finally, I sat down and I wrote it out. This is the bomb that Sally drops on me as she's driving, I think. You're driving your car. She leaves the meeting. She's driving, and she rips this sentence off as she's driving. Sally is more articulate driving than I am writing. This is what she says. This is heavy. This is a long sentence. Hang with her. She was driving. The forming and shaping that takes place when we maneuver through rejection and betrayal Breaking free of rejection and accusation and leaning into truth is the necessary forming and shaping that takes place as we are being made into priests. Jesus was rejected not so we could get out of it, but so that we could follow into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's a good word for somebody who's driving a car. So we may forever be in a submarine. By the way, if it's God's submarine, we're going to be fine. But we may be ever, forever below the surface. We may forever be hidden. We may forever not be known in all the places that you think you want to be known at, but we'll be known in heaven and hell. So we're okay being hidden if it means we have impact. Second value we want to talk about, or second theme, Close up this theme series here. 
The centrality of children. We heard this over and over and over again. We had one little guy that had a dream of the body, like the, the, the church crossing a bridge alphabetically, and certain we stood in the shape of a body in different parts, and the children were all in the very middle. They were central to that. That's like one out of five that we heard this about, the centrality of children to the bridge. Now, on the surface, arguing this point is a little bit like arguing in favor of the cuteness of bunnies or the inerrant goodness of coffee. You know, like, who's going who's gonna to dicker with those things? These are, you know, self-evident. No one's going to press back against the cuteness of bunnies. So why do we have to argue for the centrality of children? Why has that been highlighted? Maybe because that thing that we agree on the surface, we might have objections to when it comes to acting out those values. Jesus' closest followers regularly stumbled over how Jesus valued children. None of those would have said, yeah, get the children are a waste of time. No, nobody says that. But when it came down to it, they did not have the stomach for dealing with children at the level of which Jesus said, welcome them in. The Gospels all have their own slant, have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men, but through the Holy Spirit. But each Gospel has just a little bit different take. Luke, because he was a doctor, mentions more healings than any of the other Gospels. Like other, other disciples were like, yeah, healing. Luke's like, no, you don't understand what happened there. Like that was a miracle. I got to write this down. And Luke, intrigued, I think, maybe with even the development of humans as a whole, took special note to recognize Jesus' words in interaction with children. Following passages here are not metaphorical. They are literal. And these are a couple things that Dr. Luke taught us. He taught us that Jesus equated greatness with valuing children. Human beings have a desire to be great. If you don't believe me, go to somebody's 10-year high school reunion. Miserable. You got a whole room full of people trying to convince one another they're great. And they have nothing to show for it but student loans. Okay, at, at the 10-year mark, you know, you're like just barely scrapping along. I went to Kelsey's 10-year reunion. I would highly recommend to go to somebody else's 10-year reunion. <laughs> I wouldn't have gone to my own to save my life. But I, I went to Kelsey's, and so I'm looking around, and I'm watching everybody posture and tell their stories. And, I mean, I don't want to miss out, and nobody knows me here anyway. So I just start telling the most outlandish stories. <laughs> like, like, not even remotely in the realm of, you know. Cause, so I told one table that uh, I was a brain surgeon. <laughs> that seemed to work. So I went to the next table, and Kelsey introduced me to them, and I told them I'm a race car driver. And it just got a little crazier and crazier until uh, by the buffet table, I told the guy that I played bass for you too. <laughs> you know what he did? He goes, that's awesome. And then he started telling me his story. He didn't care. Because we have this inward desire to be great even if we're not. And so maybe it's not always as bad as the 10 year anniversary, but it's still pretty bad. We tell these stories and we build ourselves up. We are inherently wired to want to be great. It is not the desire to be great that is wrong. God put that in you. 
God put it in you to be something. It is the fact that we picked the wrong things to be great at. And it's the same, the disciples wrestled with the same thing. The desire to be great is not a sin. What if we could be recognized as great by somebody who really matters? Jesus equated greatness with valuing children. Luke 9, 46 to 48. An argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. It's like the 10-year reunion to the disciples. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, that is like the scariest phrase in the world. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of the bridge's heart, took a child and put him by his and said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. So this desire to be great is one that the disciples had. They saw miracles. They walked in intimacy with the Lord. And they had a burning in their heart to be recognized as great. Jesus didn't take issue with their striving for greatness. He took issue with the reasoning of their hearts he said, hey guys, I know you want to matter, and I can help you matter, but this is how you matter, you value children. This is how you become great, you value children. Whoever receives these children in my name, if you receive them, you have received the Father. It might appear to be the least important thing you can do, but in my kingdom it's the most important thing you can do, and it will actually fulfill that need for greatness in your heart. What does it mean to receive them? Like when you just greet them at the door, I receive you. Like what, what is it? Okay, to receive someone is to make allowances and to make a place for them. Now, slightly self-serving announcement here. I am very allergic to peanuts and peanut butter. Okay? So if you know that, and I go to your house, and you're serving PB&J, I can only make two assessments. One, you're forgetful. Two, you're trying to kill me. But I am welcome here is not one of the things I would jump to. Because to welcome someone, you make allowances for them, and you prepare a place for them. To welcome children at the bridge on a Sunday morning is to make a place for them. To allow or to welcome children in the foyer is to include them. My own kids will tell me when they leave and someone has had a conversation with them, made them feel heard. They just go, wow, I talked to that person and I really felt like they wanted to know who I was. It has a huge impact on kids, on all kids. We receive guests by considering their desires and their limitations. We receive children by making a place to meet their needs and let them be who they are. We see glimpses of it in worship. This morning, this was awesome. Like the beautiful chaos of just kids dancing everywhere. I love it. I love it. Let the kids, let them remember that. Let them grow up saying, you know, I went to the church's crazy little dance studio, but you know what? I can just dance my heart out makes them feel welcome. We don't want to just receive them, though. We want to empower them so that we can learn from them. Because Jesus emphasized the value of actually learning from children. 
Luke 18, again, Dr. Luke. Something happens, he goes, I gotta write this down. Verses 15 to 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Ah, keep the kids away. No, 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 no. Do not bother the, the master here. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child won't enter into it. He's like, it's not just a matter of keeping the kids and making them feel welcome. It's actually a matter of you tuning your ear to them because they bring something that you need to learn. Like, I thought we were just going to endure them. No. No. We are going to glean from them because the Lord said, watch how they come to me. Watch how they come to me with reckless abandon rather than leaning back and let's shuffle them off somewhere else so they don't bother me receiving from the master. The master says, I was trying to teach you with the kids. Jesus put children in the role of teachers because there was something about them, in this case, how to approach the father that we could all learn. In this season of dreaming and scheming and thinking about what God is saying to us, repeatedly the dreams were about honoring and raising up children, and some of the most impactful dreams came from children. Last week's section of the message about accusation came largely out of, again, a dream from a 10-year-old boy. That's not cute. That's profound. Can you imagine a setting in which kids were only to be seen and not heard? We would have missed that entirely. Could it be that by not listening to children, we have turned a deaf ear or a blind eye and we have suffered a significant lack of revelation from the Lord? We've just missed stuff. What has God said that we have not heard because we hindered children rather than listen to them. Here's one of my goals. To make sure that our kids have the training and the space and the platform that we can learn everything we have from them. And we can glean from them. It's not a new idea. It's actually a very old one. Danny is here to help us with Danny who led worship this morning. He is here to help us coordinate some of that and bring a little more formation to that. We've had we have folks helping all along and we just we're trying to shore things up. And I am telling you, we need your help in this. And it is an opportunity for you to step in to the centrality of children around here. So, well, it's really not my gifting. It's surprising what you can do with just a little want to. You know, you do things that are important because you want to and you know it needs to be done. Nobody is walking by that pile of dishes in your house because it's not their gifting. (laughs) Just don't feel called. (laughs) We've been eating on paper plates for four days. Some the call you know (laughs) things that are important we do them so I want to challenge you to consider talking to Danny going how can I help maybe you're teaching maybe you're organizing other things whatever talk to him because that's what it means to honor and, and value these kids this is what we get out of it Acts 21 is a story of Philip the evangelist not to be confused with Philip 
the disciple. Different guy, okay? Philip the evangelist was called an evangelist, but he was a deacon, which meant he was recruited to wash tables. Can you imagine if he would have gone, that's really not my gifting. But he did it. He washed tables. Stepping into areas where you need to serve will never stop you from your actual calling. It'll never stop you from your area of gifting. So he gets to be known as Philip the Evangelist. Really, he was a deacon. He was a dishwasher. Periodically, would go out to the front of the house and he would win somebody to the Lord and he'd go back and wash more dishes. Philip was the guy who won uh, Simon the Sorcerer to Jesus. The dishwasher wins witches to the Lord. He's got a grip. He probably walks out this work ministry mandate better than anybody else that we know. And the only real important thing we know about Philip the Evangelist, about his personal life, is in Acts 21, verse 9, it says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This guy somehow raised his kids that he had these four young daughters that prophesied. Think of the cultural and the age and all of the things that would have said that's not likely. Except in the early church, they valued children and they included them. I have faith and expectation for the sons of daughters in this house to step into their calling and not wait till they're 30 years old to do it. How much further along would you be if somebody had a believe there was a call in your life when you were 12? Instead of told you, go here, sit here, be quiet. Lou Ingle was with us a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, we, some day yeah, I hope for you to meet his family. He's just got the most remarkable seven kids. His oldest son, Jesse, is um, Jesse from the time he was like 19. He's been a baby whisperer. All of, our little, all of our girls when they were little just had the biggest crush on Jesse. Even as babies, he could just pick them up and they just love Jesse. But when Lou was doing The Call DC, the original one back in 2000, Jesse was 12. And Jesse was a baseball player. He was a pitcher. He was really good. And opportunities were starting to open up for him to pitch and travel. Lou was traveling, garnering support for the call DC. In August of that year, September of that year, he gathered 450,000 people to pray on the mall in DC. Some were like, whoa, that's impressive. Three years earlier, he was mowing yards. Like that's what the call of God will do on somebody. So Jesse's making the adjustment of his dad traveling and he's trying to play baseball and Jesse has a dream. And I'm not going to get into the dream, but the dream was basically an invitation for him not to wait till he was 21 to step into what God called him to do. The dream was you don't have to wait till you're 21. You can step into your calling at 12. So Jesse goes to his dad. He said, dad, I want to travel with you and I want to barnstorm and recruit for people to come to the call. His dad's like, how are you going to do that? You're playing baseball. He goes, I want to be about this. I'm going to step away from baseball and I want to, I want to follow what God's called me to do. Now, that day, we didn't know Lou at that time. We were at the event and we're on the mall with 450,000 people and all of a sudden we hear this voice of a child and it's Jesse. He had taken a Nazarite vow for a year he had a little burr haircut. He just, he just quit cutting his hair. He would only eat fruits and vegetables. 
He just took this Nazarite vow for a year, and after a year of this and traveling with his dad in front of 450,000 people, they give this kid, maybe at this point, he maybe has just turned 13. They give him a microphone. Watch this. It's about a minute long. This is Jesse in front of almost half a million people. a kid like that and some of you go does that kid turn out to be weird <laughs> no you watched enough Netflix specials <laughs> no straight up you've watched enough things where passionate young people flake off or it gets strange no let me show you Jesse right now Jesse's in his 30s loves Jesus married four kids he is uh, the director of ministries around the world with Every Home for Christ, which is the largest door-to-door ministry organization in the world. They've got missionaries in over 200 countries. That kid doesn't end up being weird. That kid ends up growing up believing that adults thought he could hear the word of the Lord. That's how that turns out. Children have got to be central to what we do. I want to produce that out of this house. And I want to make up for lost ground for some of you who nobody believed in when you were that age. And I want to give you the ability to believe in your kids to be that. Maybe not that exact form or that exact expression, but everything God has called them to be. I want to ask if Zion would come down and jump on keys real quick. I think Danny's in with the kids. But I want to close this out. If we look at kids as a distraction and a cute nuisance... Then we look at ministry to kids as a convenience for ourselves. If we had kids' ministry, we can just sit in here by ourselves. If the idea of just warehousing them is what we're thinking, we could use Benadryl. We're not looking to warehouse kids. We're looking to unleash them. We're looking to welcome them. We're looking to call them into what they're supposed to be. These last three messages on themes have been impactful, but they're a little bit hard to land because we've talked about a number of different things. But there are just two things I want to touch on as I close here. Some of you are still milling over your airport story, and you're wondering why rejection is so much a part of what you would say if somebody asked you, how are you? I want to encourage you to realize what the Lord is doing through that is shaping you and forming you into a person who can afford to be hidden and trusted to be impactful. He's like, some of them, some of them love me enough they can afford to be hidden and I can trust them with great impact and they don't wig out. He wants to use that that season of rejection in your life to do that. You go, okay, I'm all right with this. 
Others are stirred thinking about the centrality of kids. We are barely scratching the surface of what that means. But I would encourage you, get with Danny. Ask, how can I help? How can I bring kids into the focus? And we got a lot to learn about this, but we can't, we can't be what God's calling us to be if we don't focus on that. Stand with me if you would. Just want to pray a blessing over you. There's a production here. Oh, should have explained. They're producing the Adams family this afternoon in this room. That's why this is all behind us. Jeff sent me a picture. He goes, remember the dream? Stay within the A. If you missed the dream, it's a little hard to explain. But And it was Sally Adams was one of the people who had the dream. Here's, here we are at the Adams family. To the prophetic, everything is prophetic which is way better than living with nothing being prophetic. Father, we love you and we say that we yearn to be people that you can trust to be hidden. We yearn to be people who will learn from you and take up our cross and be willing to be put off in a corner if it means that we can shake heaven and shape earth. So Father, we embrace this value that we, we're okay with being hidden but being impactful. What we're not okay with is being hidden and not being impactful. So lead us as we walk into this, we pray. Father, I pray, pray for the young people, the children in this church, that you would help us to welcome them and glean from them. Father, I pray right now that Danny would be overwhelmed with people saying, I understand the value of this now, and I'm willing to do what it takes. We love you. Thank you for being present in our worship this morning. Thank you for meeting us. Thank you as we build a tabernacle that you'll meet us there. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.